Welcome to episode 10 of Garner's Greek Mythology. Did you ever see the Hollywood movie Back to the Future? Marty McFly, Duck, Biff. Marty gets an eyeful, a real sneak preview of coming events. It was the same with the ancient Greeks. They didn't have a time machine, though. They had an oracle known as the Pythia. She was a priestess who channeled the prophecies of Apollo. But that was only half of it. Here's what's amazing. She did this for 1,200 years and was never wrong. Welcome to Garner's Greek Mythology. This is Patrick Garner. I'm a mythologist and author of three best-selling novels. They constitute a trilogy and have one theme, that the ancient Greek gods are here and that they never left. Imagine with me that they were never myths. Today we begin in Delphi, a small town that the Greeks considered the center of the world. Fittingly, it was also the spot Apollo chose for prophecy. There he spoke through a priestess who acted as his intermediary. She was known as the Delphic Oracle, and all knelt at her pronouncements. Delphi, it was believed that Zeus released two golden eagles from Olympia. One flew east and one flew west. Where they met was the Omphelos, the Earth's center. Delphi lay about 75 miles west of Athens. A journey by foot could take days over the dirt trails that led up to the slopes of Mount Parnassus. Delphi became the most sacred precinct in Greece. There, the original earth goddess, Gaia, guarded a massive snake called Pytho. About 1000 BC, Apollo claimed Delphi as his own, killing the snake and declaring the region his. As you can imagine, killing any being important to Gaia would be risky, but Apollo got away with it. Perhaps Gaia foresaw that the Pythia would become far more important than the Pytho. Regardless, by the time 500 years had passed, Delphi was an immensely wealthy religious center. Its importance was incalculable. For the Greeks, not only was it the physical center of the earth, it was the spiritual epicenter. And here's how it worked. A leader would consult the Pythia asking, should one city attack another, or would an invading army prevail in its assault? And the Pythia would know. And so the Pythia became their infallible source for everything worth knowing. I say this conscious that we have no one even vaguely comparable. Can you imagine a modern country pondering whether to invade another and first consulting an oracle? It's unimaginable. We'd mock any leader caught in such an act. In Greece, for well over a millennium, all major political and military decisions were vetted by Apollo's priestess. And no one doubted whatever she forecast. No one questioned her 
because her prophecies were invariably correct. Imagine 1,200 years of error-free predictions. So who was the Pythia? Without exception, she was chosen from one of the priestesses serving in Apollo's temple. She was required to be at least 50 years old. I note her age because popular art always depicts her as a young woman, but historians of the time describe her differently. She would have served the god for decades and been immersed in the oracular language and tradition. She would have repeatedly watched the former Pythia voicing Apollo's thoughts. So when she took over the sacred office, she was simply one woman in an ancient line of Pythias. All dressed as maidens, often barefoot and wearing a head covering, they held a bowl with sacred water in one hand and a laurel bough in the other. As they listened to petitioners from across the region, they gazed down as if in a trance. There were specific rituals that each followed. For instance, she bathed first in a sacred spring. Then she drank from blessed water. Once cleansed, the Pythia entered the temple and descended into a chamber. Some said the chamber was situated over an ancient fissure in the earth, that the fissure emitted hallucinogenic gases. Modern inspection of the site has failed to confirm this. Regardless, we know that the Pythia mounted an ornate tripod where she sat in wait. And before receiving supplicants, she chewed laurel leaves because the laurel was sacred to Apollo. Chewing the leaves let him know she awaited his instruction. One of the most famous queries came from the king of Thebes. His wife was childless and he asked, will I ever have a son? The Pythia stated, if you have a son, he will kill you. Later, the king's wife delivered a son and the king dreading the prophecy took the child into the hills and abandoned it. Shepherds found the boy and raised him in secrets. When the child whose name was Oedipus grew to manhood, he visited the Pythia asking, whose son am I? Her response was, do not go back to your native land. You are destined to kill your father and marry your mother. Can you imagine receiving that news? Of course, the prophecy was fulfilled. We've seen this son kills father theme before, and the Pythia always knew when the threat would rear its head again. But Apollo's oracle did not confine herself to matters of war and marriage. Occasionally she would show her deep knowledge of philosophy and those who practice the art. 
Socrates, probably the most famous philosopher of all time, had a friend who approached the Pythia when Socrates was still quite young. He was only about 30. The friend asked the Pythia if there was a wiser man than Socrates in all of Greece. She said succinctly, there is no one wiser. Socrates later explained this by saying that he knew that he knew nothing, whereas other men claim mastery of this and that while knowing no more than he knew. According to Plato, Socrates' words were, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. Another smart guy named Einstein two millennia later would write, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. Athens, very early in its history, long before its war with Sparta, was hit by a multi-year plague. Famine and death swept the city. The leaders asked the Pythia if the city could be saved. She replied, only if you send seven of your sons and seven of your daughters every year to King Minos on Crete, where he will do with them what he wishes. And so it was that Athens sacrificed 14 of its children every year and their fate was to be eaten by the Minotaur, a monster that was half man and half bull. And although the plague ended, this cruelty went on for years. Finally, Theseus, one of Athens' earliest heroes, killed the Minotaur with the help of the king's own daughter, Ariane. Ariane, who became the god Dionysus' wife, plays a role in my book, Homo Divinitus. It's one of two love stories that propel the book forward. And about 2,000 years ago, stories like that of Theseus reinforced Greece's image of itself. No other region was as civilized, as, as rich with fantastic tales of gods and man. Yet nothing compared to the importance of Apollo's oracle. Why do I say that? She was irreplaceable, yet she was constantly replaced by new Pythias. Remember, there may have been as many as 60 in all. She was old, and yet she dressed as if she was still a girl. She sat above her supplicants as if on a throne, yet she was nothing herself as she was no more than Apollo's voice. Yet here's what's utterly unique. She prophesied for over a thousand years and we have no record that she was ever wrong. Let's do the math. This spokeswoman for the God was consulted hundreds of times a year. If this went on for a thousand years, she would have made well over a hundred thousand prophecies. hundred thousand. That's an astounding number. Yet we have no record that she was ever wrong. And so her reputation grew. There were men who tried to trick her, asking her to solve problems that didn't exist or to predict the future of a marriage that they'd made up. She always knew. And Apollo always punished any man who came in deceit. 
The Pythia's track record was extraordinary, and it's doubly extraordinary because the women who served Apollo as Pythias were real people. They, they weren't legends or myths from some distant past. No, the Pythia was a living Greek woman, seen by all who came for answers. As such, her reputation was tested with each prediction. If she had only been occasionally correct, she would have been mocked. Her supplicants would have turned elsewhere, yet they did not. Is there a comparable person alive today? Of course not. Can we even imagine such a figure? It's ridiculous. It's impossible. It's beyond the realm of reason, yet no one questioned the Pythia. She was, in short, frighteningly accurate. So what are we to make of this? I suppose as moderns we could laugh and claim the declarations about her were all made up. Some scholars have done exactly that. But we have far too many writers who were her contemporaries, and all accepted her veracity. Socrates did not doubt her word, nor did Homer, Pindar, Plato, or Aristotle. Whether common citizens or celebrated cynics, all accepted her predictions. She was what we might call a force of nature. But it was not nature that powered the Pythia. The Greeks knew for certain that there was a single explanation, and that was solely that she spoke for Apollo. Her pronouncements were not always easily understood. The Pythia often spoke obscurely or even in riddles. The people of Delphi warned the Pythia that a northern tribe, the Gauls, were on the verge of invading Delphi. The people asked, shall we remove the treasures, children, and women to a neighboring city? The Pythia spoke angrily, saying, let the offerings and everything else stay where they are. I and the maidens will attend to this. And attend she did. As the Gauls approached, they were met by earthquakes, avalanches, and a massive snowstorm. Lightning bolts and hail rained down on their camps, killing hundreds. The invaders fled, and Delphi remained untouched. In 67 AD, Nero, the crazed emperor of Rome, visited Delphi. He had killed his own mother eight years earlier. Everyone in the empire knew of the murder. He asked the Pythia how long he would live. In disgust, the Pythia whispered, You outrage the god you ask. Leave my presence, mother killer, and beware of the year 73. Nero rejoiced, convinced he would live to be 73. Instead, Shortly afterwards, he was killed by a revolt by one of his generals who was 73 years old. 
These stories are typical. Hundreds are recorded, and year after year, extraordinary predictions came true. The Greeks expected as much. After all, the Pythia had spoken. Yet, be that as it may, as the years went by, Apollo had begun losing interest in the game of being a god. His sister Artemis had already slipped away. And although Apollo was revered by the Romans who had succeeded the Greeks, a new religion was afoot. In the early 3rd century AD, the emperor Diocletian was told by an oracle that Christianity would bring on the destruction of the Roman Empire. In response, Diocletian began to prosecute the Christians. This continued until a new emperor, Constantine, issued the so-called Edict of Toleration. The edict freed the Christians to openly worship, but it also freed them to persecute the Pythia. Their bishop stated that a pagan prophet was unacceptable. The Pythia spoke for Apollo, and Apollo was a false god. Now, at this point in history, Rome was in trouble. It was under attack from so-called barbarians, and it was splintering internally. In 362 AD, the Emperor Julian, seeking to unify the dying empire by steering it back into the arms of Zeus and Apollo, approached the Pythia. Julian offered the emperor's services to the temple. In response, the Pythia hissed, The temple has fallen in decay. The stream is dry that had so much to say. After hearing the Pythia's response, Julian abandoned his plans. By 400 AD, Theodosius would bring it all to an end, closing Apollo's temples, destroying the statues, and burning the sacred groves. The Olympics, sporting events that had gone on for centuries, were ended. Incredibly, athletic competition was considered a pagan thing. And the philosophers who had remained were driven away. Even Apollo, the astonishing god of prophecy through his Pythia had foretold his own demise, had vanished by then. The passing of the Pythia's authority was celebrated by the new religion as an immense and righteous victory. The last recorded oracle was in 393 AD, moments before the sacred temple was shuttered for all time. The last Pythia said simply, all is ended. So it was mostly over. The glory that was Greece was no more. And what deities remained? One was the terrible Ares, 
In our next podcast, we leave prophecy and return to the fields of war where he could be found in the heat of violence, inflaming the bloodlust of warriors. Another divinity who stayed on was the goddess Hecate. She was a divine being of gloom and sorcery. Accompanied by hellhounds, she was found on dark nights at crossroads. And in time, she became the patron of witches, magic makers, and enchantresses. But don't despair, we'll visit both soon enough. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.